of Sassanacs, it's Chelsea back for another episode of the Sassanac Files. This week, I'm discussing the season six finale, I Am Not Alone. But before we get to that, I want to take a moment to remind you that you can find the Sassanac Files on all sorts of listening platforms, including iTunes, CastBox, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, and many more. Also, if you have not had a chance yet, make sure you head over to follow the Sassanac Files on both Facebook and Instagram to make sure you are up to date on all of the latest and greatest news concerning Outlander Season 7 and anything Diana Gabaldon cooks up. And with all of that out of the way, let's get into my analysis of Season 6, Episode 8, I Am Not Alone. that we have ever had a finale quite like this one. First off, it leaves with a massive cliffhanger, which is not really Outlander style. I understand why they did it because they weren't planning on stopping at eight episodes. So that was kind of just how it happened. But overall, I think that it worked really well as a finale. There were lots of full circle moments from the premiere that had a payoff in this episode. So I get why it made sense to stop here. This episode was directed by Jamie Payne, who a lot of you may know from season five of Outlander. He directed the final block of that season as well, which was phenomenal. And he's got a very creative and beautiful look to his episodes. It's actually a style of cinematography that I actually really like. He really likes to dabble in the high contrast, really inky blacks and the really bright, fiery colors, which, you know, I'm always a fan of anything that kind of pops off the screen like that. So I was really excited when I saw Jamie Payne coming back for this season because I do feel like ultimately he understands our characters really well, which I feel is extremely important in a show like Outlander that is very character driven. I think he did a phenomenal job with this episode. No complaints whatsoever, except for that, you know, it's the last episode and we have to wait another year and some change for season seven. And I really hope they bring him back for season seven because honestly, every episode that he's done has been fantastic so far. Always looking forward to see what is next from Jamie Payne. This episode had two very distinct storylines in it. The first was Brie and Roger and kind of what they were doing. And then obviously we have all of the stuff going on with Jamie and Claire. And there is a lot going on with Jamie and Claire. So we'll touch on Brie and Roger first just to kind of dip our toes in it. They're on their way to Edenton for the presbytery session where Roger hopes to become a minister. Everything is looking so good for the Max. They're happy. It's just the three of them. Well, four if you count the little baby. Overall, it's a very peaceful vibe to the McKenzie family, which I think is good to kind of get a break from all of the tension of what's happening on the ridge and with Jamie and Claire, but also provides a extreme juxtaposition and really highlights the tumult of Jamie and Claire's story by showing the sweet perfection that is the Max. I think that was very much the case when we compare the two love scenes in this episode. I can't remember the last time, and I don't think... We have had a time in the series where we've had two love scenes from two completely different couples in the same episode. I was trying to remember if that was the case, and I think maybe season three, but I can't remember for sure. The scene between Brianna and Roger, I feel like it was so good to see them in their element. The love scene between them is something that is very unique to them as a character. I love the use of the car being driven over the landscape, as it were, and taking the scenic route. It's a beautiful dialogue that can only happen between two time travelers. And we don't have that opportunity very often. I mean, you can't have this conversation between Jamie and Claire, where Roger's like, oh, I thought you found speed erotic. And Bree's asking, do you think we'll ever go 75 miles an hour again? They're keeping their lives 
in the 20th century alive for one another. They can discuss it with each other and kind of reminisce. It's very much a young and in love scene. They're giggling and laughing, but they're having this passionate moment as well. Complete parent moment where Bree's like, shh, we'll wake Jimmy. He's like, a real Ford Mustang couldn't wake Jimmy. I loved it. I loved the cinematography of it all and the lantern candlelight glow on the canvas of the tent. It was gorgeous looking. And then what made this scene even more fun for me was a story that Rick Rankin told at Outlandish Vancouver when he was talking about the sound guy for this scene and how, you know, they're in this little tent and it's very tight quarters anyway, and there's not a lot of room to move around. And somehow you have to fit your two actors, a cameraman, a sound man, and all the equipment in this tiny little tent. And so Rick was like, you're trying to be intimate and get into the scene and be in the moment with your scene partner. And all of a sudden you just see this mic boom literally come down into your face. And he said, you realize how hard that is to not break character and to just like take the scene seriously when that kind of thing is happening. So I thought that was funny. I always remember that story whenever I watch this scene. The happiness of the Max kind of just keeps rolling in this episode And we learn that Roger is really Jimmy's father. I mean, there's been a lot of debate in the show-watching fandom. Obviously, the book readers knew that Roger is Jimmy's father. But because of the casting of the twins that they chose to play Jimmy and the fact that apparently he's blonde, so he has to be Stephen Bonnet's kid. I was talking to a couple of friends about this the other day, and I'm like, you know what? My sister-in-law is a redhead, and my brother is very dark-haired, and they have a blonde son. So I don't buy that for a second, the whole, well, he's blonde, so he has to be Stephen Bonnet's son. Hair color doesn't mean jack, okay? And we just discovered that this genetic trait that Roger has He's passed on to Jimmy. And so I think anything that they're telling us like that pretty much trumps a hair color theory. But I digress. I thought it was really sweet. I'm glad that we finally got answers to the paternity question because it's been really hard for me to keep my mouth shut on this podcast (laughs) and not let it slip that Roger is actually Jimmy's biological father. So I'm glad we've got that out of the way. It was a very sweet moment. Brie is just so happy. Roger's happy because it's not that they don't love Jimmy, but there's just something about knowing that he's actually Roger's flesh and blood, you know, versus the son of his heart. For Brie, it's more of a relief that Jimmy is not Stephen Bonnet's child child in that there wasn't a byproduct of that night that she can fully move forward because she 100% loves her son. But if there was the possibility that he was Stephen Bonnet's child, then you have to worry about the possibility of nature versus nurture. Plus you have a constant reminder of one of the most horrible nights of your life. So it's kind of a relief off her shoulders as well. But by far and away, I think the most adorable thing in this entire episode, and let's face it, this episode was an extremely tough episode. It was really heavy. So to kind of get these light moments with the Max was perfect, in my opinion. When Jemmy comes up into the wagon seat with Bram Roger, and he says, I want to talk to the baby, and then leans over and goes, hi, baby. I love you so much. My heart just melts when I watch that. It is so cute. And I was listening to the official podcast and I guess there wasn't really a scripted line for Jimmy. It was just Jimmy was supposed to talk to the baby. And then whichever twin, Matthew or Andrew, I can't remember which one is in this scene. They leaned over and said, hi, baby. I love you so much. And that's the take that they decided to keep. And I was like, that's so cute. I really adored the Brie, Roger, Jemmy storylines of this episode, but there is this twinge of, oh, but what if in the one really serious plot-driven scene of this episode, which kind of reminds us where we're at in the story because Brie and Roger are talking about how are we going to explain all of this to Jemmy and when are we going to tell him? Are we going to tell him that we're time travelers and that he most likely is too? They're discussing what the right course of action is, how to approach the situation, because obviously Roger growing up wasn't in a situation where he 
he could have been informed because there's no way that anybody could have known that he was a time traveler. But Brie, on the other hand, really does wish that she had known earlier about her true parentage, about her ability to time travel, so on and so forth. But I thought it was really great in this scene that we get some insight into Brie's maturity and acceptance of the situation because we've been with her through this whole time. We were there with her when she found out in season two, all the way through to where she's happily living on the ridge with Jamie and Claire. To see her growth and acceptance of the situation and for her to say, yeah, I wish they would have told me earlier. But to be honest, Frank didn't believe Claire at first and nobody really knows whether he ended up believing her in the end. But one thing that we do know is that Frank asked Claire not to tell Brianna who her father was or that she was potentially a time traveler. Frank asked Claire to allow Brianna to believe that he was her father. Claire gave him her word and Brie, she agrees with Claire's actions. She doesn't think that Claire would have had a valid reason to break her word and she's glad that she didn't. As much as she wishes she had known the truth sooner, she understands why her parents made the choices that they did. So I was really glad to see that in Brie, but as they're discussing this, Brie and Roger kind of determine that they are going to tell Jimmy eventually but they have to choose their time wisely because there's always the chance that Jimmy will blab to all of his friends if they tell him too soon and he doesn't realize that he's not supposed to be telling people, that this isn't common knowledge. It's a very fine line to walk. And then, of course, Roger brings up the very valid point that he said, it's not just a risk for us to tell Jimmy that he's a time traveler, but we're also running the risk that one day he's going to decide to leave us and go back to the future. And I don't think that's anything that crossed anyone's minds up until Roger said it. You know, you just assume, well, your whole family's there. Why on earth would you go back through the stones? But a young man could go simply out of curiosity. Something could happen to someone and he could decide to leave. There's a lot of different situations that could be the catalyst to Jemmy leaving Brie and Roger and Jamie and Claire and his little brother or sisters in the past. It's a very complex situation. And so, I love that we kind of are starting to understand the complexities of Brian Rogers' decision making in these early years and deciding what they're going to tell their children and how they're going to tell them. I think that was the big important thing that we established in this episode for the Max was kind of their parenting style, if you will. The big thing about this episode was definitely what was going on with Jamie and Claire at the ridge, off the ridge, and kind of all the characters surrounding them throughout this episode. Richard Brown has had an axe to grind with Jamie for a long time now. It all started with last season finale in season five when Jamie delivered Lionel's body to Richard Brown and said, a band of men came upon my land, abducted and violated my wife. We hunted them down and I killed them all. I brought you your brother. Richard Brown in this very menacing threat says, you did what you must and so will I when the time comes. So the time has come apparently. And he's doing what he must. So Richard Brown, I think, is kind of an interesting character in a lot of ways. We're never really sure what's motivating him. It's really easy to see him as a straight up villain. But I honestly don't think that he's a villain in the same way that we viewed Lionel. His motivations are a lot more complex. He's a much more intelligent character. This whole episode, we're kind of seeing him and Jamie play off of each other. It all starts in this first scene where we pick up right where episode seven left off. He says, we're here to arrest your wife for the murder of Malva Christie. And Jamie's like, get off my land. You have no right to be here. Who the hell do you think you are? It's very much this standoff and a war of will. Richard is giving this spiel about how it's justice and he didn't expect Jamie to just come out and give her up. And Jamie says, I can what you're doing. The ironic part of that situation is that 
that, in fact, Jamie doesn't ken what Richard Brown is doing. Richard is very much serving as a distraction to Jamie so that his man Ezra can sneak in, grab Claire before Jamie is any the wiser, and they can abscond with her in very much the Brown fashion. What Brown is not counting on is the fact that Claire is actually very capable of defending herself and is already on her way to the gun case to get a couple of fouling pieces and some pistols and actually ends up shooting his man, which alerts Jamie to the plan. All hell breaks loose. And we get into this Western style shootout at the OK Corral type thing where we've got guns going off everywhere, things exploding, characters and stuntmen getting shot. It's chaos, but it's a really cool chaos. And I'm glad that despite this season being filmed during COVID, we didn't have to sacrifice that one big action sequence that we seem to always get throughout a season of Outlander. It was very fine-tuned and extremely planned out. You see a scene like this, it seems to run so smooth and everything is very cohesive, but it's a million different moving parts. You've got the actors and the director, the cinematographer, the set dresser, the set designer, stunt coordinators and stuntmen and explosives technicians. <laughs> it's insane. This episode was actually the only episode that I gave a 10 out of 10 to in my knee-jerk reaction. That's how satisfied I was with how this episode was written and directed and how it looked looked overall. I, I really love it. The shootout and subsequent standoff kind of happen in several different pieces. The one thing that I found very interesting about the special effects in this episode was I found out what a squib is. And, you know, I love learning new things. So a squib is a fake gunshot. So whenever you see in the show what looks like a bullet embedding itself in a shutter or a piece of glass or bouncing off of something. It's actually a tiny explosive that pings like it just shatters whatever is happening at that point. So those are called squibs and each one of them is a specifically marked planned location that They've got tons of cameras trained on. It's choreographed with the actors so they know what they're reacting to. It's very carefully constructed. There were lots of squibs in this episode, obviously. I don't even know how many guns were used in this episode. I mean, Jamie and Claire have a whole arsenal in their priest hole, which is pretty badass. I was very fond of them locking themselves in the house, and then Jamie turns to Claire and goes, we're going to need more guns. It's like the Outlander equivalent of we're going to need a bigger boat. I guess it's a good thing that they had more guns because in the end, Jamie and Claire were able to tag team the Browns gang and take multiple guns for each of them and each take an end of the house. So it looked like there were multiple people in the house with them, which was actually really cool and was able to keep Brown and his men on their toes because they didn't know if it was just Jamie and Claire or if Josiah was with them. So very good technique on Jamie's part. I mean, he's very good at thinking 10 steps ahead. So I guess we should expect no less from the King of Men, but it was very clever nonetheless. One of the most beautiful, jaw-dropping, makes my artist's eye so happy things that we saw in this episode was a very unique shot of Sam, or Jamie, however you want to look at it, with his gun up shooting out the window and when the smoke and the sparks go off and he's in the sitting room or the parlor. So it's that teal paint behind him. Oh, it's such a gorgeous shot. It brings out the blue in his eyes so much with that background. I have that still, the show still, of him shooting out the window with the sparks flying in the smoke as my background for my podcast laptop because it's such a gorgeous piece and it was very carefully thought out like they knew they wanted that shot and so they planned it that way. And while I was watching the scene with the whole shootout and stuff, I was like, my God, everybody must have been deaf after this day on set with all of these blanks going off for like hours on 
on end and just all the explosives and guns. It was crazy. And then to add on top of it, the fact that they shot the outside stuff at a completely different time than they shot the inside stuff. And then they pasted it all together in post to create this seamless scene was really just beyond the call of duty, I feel like. Like, you would never would have guessed. But one of my favorite special effects of the whole episode was probably when Richard Brown was approaching the house. He had his hat in one hand and his handkerchief slash flag of truce in the other. And he's trying to get Jamie and Claire to come out and talk. And we're not going to hurt her. We just want to take her for trial. It's the law. Jamie hesitates for a moment. And at the end of this conversation where Claire's like, no way in hell am I going out there. She just has this no words marital conversation with Jamie. More words are said and then he raises his gun and shoots the hat out of Richard Brown's hand and says, you have my answer. I love that special effect, which is actually just a wire attached to the hat. And at the specified time, the off-screen person that was in charge of the hat yanked on the wire and ripped it out of the actor's hand. So I thought that was really cool how that was done, but also shows Jamie's cheeky nature, if you will. Like, I loved how he was just toying with Brown. That whole shootout scene where he was literally shooting at his feet to keep him where he was. Like, don't come any closer. If I wanted you dead, you'd be cool in this minute. So speak your peace and get away from my house. When all of this is said and done, I think the interesting part about Brown as a villain, which is what I was trying to get to 10 minutes ago and then got sidetracked. What I really think is interesting about Brown as a villain is that we don't ever fully know what his motivations are. I do, to a certain extent, believe that he's a better person than Lionel was, if anything, because he's more emotionally mature. But what's interesting is how he plays different parts of this episode. I really do think that he intends on taking Jamie and Claire to trial, and that he does think that Claire is responsible for murdering Malva, and that's the impetus for this. Does he want revenge on Jamie? Oh, hell yeah, he wants revenge on Jamie. But I think that deep down, he really does believe that there is a service that needs provided by the Committee of Safety. And that's why he's determined to take Claire to wherever he needs to take her, because he does believe that she killed Malva. It's just a bonus that it's going to hurt Jamie to do it. And I think that Jamie is very much convinced that if he and Claire had not put up so much of a fight, they probably would have been strung up out in their dooryard. I don't want 100% know if that's true because I do think that Brown has a certain sense of justice about him. And I think we get that in the scene after they forcibly separate Jamie and Claire. Brown approaches Claire and he says, look, what my brother did to you was cruel and inexcusable, but you committed murder, Mistress Fraser. And he expects to see justice done in that respect, where the cruel and unusual punishment comes in to it is separating Jamie and putting him on a ship to Scotland so that there's no way that he can protect her or be there for her to support her. That's his role in life and to be put on a ship to Scotland knowing he's never going to see her again because he's the only one as far as he knows in her corner to be there to fight for her. She's almost guaranteed to either rot in prison or be hanged outright. She's not going to get a trial because there is no justice system in place anywhere. I mean, that's the time that we're at in history. We are in May of 1775 in this episode, which is after the battles of Lexington and Concord on April 19th of 1775, but we're still a year out from the Declaration of Independence in July of 1776. So the revolution is well underway and things are certainly starting to happen. Communities are being driven apart by the the question of independency. After they are removed from the ridge, Brown has a hard time finding a sheriff or a court system that is open and available to take a case like this because it's a matter of politics, as the judge told Brown. This isn't boding well for Claire, and Jamie knows that. Tom Christie knows that. It's kind of all just falling apart at the seams, but Brown is amping up his level of villainy as the episode goes. And like I said, I think there's this base thing of I want to do the right thing and I want justice done. But the fact that Lionel really was his brother, as he says, 
not only does he feel obligated, but he feels driven to kind of seek justice done, not just for Malva Christie, but for his brother as well. He's going to see Claire hung and he's convinced of that. And he thinks that it's going to be a cakewalk now because Jamie's out of the way. But I have news for him. It's not going to be that easy. So one thing that he didn't really count on in this whole thing was his inflammatory tactics backfiring. So he's thinking, okay, well, even if I can't find a sheriff to arrest her or a court to take her to trial, I can still try her in the court of public opinion, as Claire referred to it in the last episode. And I can make sure that everybody knows that she murdered this young girl and her unborn child and taint their reputation so that no matter where they go, rumors are going to follow them and they're not going to get a fair trial. Whenever they show up in this meat camp slash whatever you want to call it, where they drive through and it's just a bunch of tents and furs and carcasses hanging, they're like, here they are, the murderers that you've heard so much about, and the stoning takes place. It's an extremely interesting situation on so many levels because not only do we have Richard Brown getting completely fed up with the situation, he thought that it was going to be a cut and dry arrest them, kill them, or immediately find a court to take them to. He planned on dropping them off in Salisbury and letting the authorities there handle it, but they don't have a justice system there right now because of the ongoing war. So they have to go all the way to Wilmington. Well, he's jeopardizing the loyalty of his men because they didn't count on traveling 200 miles to deliver these people into the hands of somebody, anybody, anybody that'll take him, please, off our hands. That'd be great. His men didn't count on that. That's not what they were in for. And so the longer this draws out, the worse it gets until this stoning occurs. It's just mass chaos. Richard Brown doesn't have any control over the situation. And ironically enough, what ceases the craziness is Tom Christie pulling his gun out of his belt and firing it into the air. And when I saw that, I thought it was so ironic. It really says a lot about Tom Christie's character journey throughout season six that he's willing to stop a conflict by the use of a firearm because in six so one, when Alan goes hunting with Ian, Alan tells Ian that Tom does not abide by the use of firearms and would never have taught him to use a gun. And instead, he would have said, lay down thy weapons and take up the shield of faith, wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. Well, apparently Tom Christie's religion is not working too well in facing down an angry mob with a bunch of rocks. And they're just pelting Jamie and Claire with them. Tom Christie's what saves Jamie and Claire from that. It's like the unlikely anti-hero of this episode of this season. You don't expect Tom to be the one to stand in between Jamie and Claire and their adversary. It's kind of one of the things that I love about this story is that you're not quite sure how to feel about Tom. And it's like that the entire season. And by the end of the season, you're still not quite sure how to feel about Tom. He's a very fluid character in that respect. Sometimes you love him, sometimes you hate him, and most of the time you're just not sure what to think. After the ceasefire at the house, before Jamie and Claire are arrested, there are a few really touching scenes that happen. So they have what is dubbed The Last Supper by Sam and Katrina. It's one of Sam's favorite scenes of the entire season that they did. And it's really easy to see why, because these scenes where Jamie and Claire kind of reflect and go back into their default setting, which is to be near one another and take comfort in one another's presence. There's also the very real possibility that this may be their last night on this earth because when the ceasefire is called, Jamie looks at Claire and he says, well, they'll probably wait till dark and fire the house. And we go back to season four. What drove Brianna and Roger back to the past in the first place was the obituary that says that Jamie and Claire died in a house fire. Yes, the house fire was supposed to take place in January and it is now May, but that doesn't really change the fact that the opportunity is presenting itself. And Jamie even says, Sassanac, I was a printer. You can't believe everything you read in the broadsheets. But to be off by four months seems like a lot, 
of course, it could be true. And so they're living in this period of uncertainty with each other where they're not really sure whether they're going to live to see the morning. These few scenes that we get, they're very close with each other, sharing things with each other. It's just a very domestic Jamie and Claire moment. It's the calm after the storm, before the next storm rolls along. It's very beautiful. The Last Supper actually is an interesting moment because they're talking about... In the future, people that are condemned to death are able to eat whatever they want to eat for their last meal. And then normally it's something from their childhood, something that gives them a sense of comfort. Claire says that her last meal would be a cheeseburger, fries, and a Coke from Carmi's, which is a restaurant that she used to take Brianna to when she was little. And that's actually the title card for this episode, which I thought was creative, that tie in there. It leads to Jamie reverting back to his comfort setting where he's like, I wouldn't choose any other meal besides being here with you in our home. I feel like Jamie is doing his best to comfort Claire in this moment where he's really afraid that she's going to break because he knows how vulnerable she is right now. Earlier in the day when Brown had suggested them surrendering and saying, we don't want to hurt her. We just want to take her for trial. It's the law. Claire tells Jamie, I would rather die than go with them, Jamie. And he says, I would never let you go. After what happened to Claire in season five, she just is prepared to die rather than go through something like that again. And I think Jamie would rather die than see her go through something like that again. And there is a moment in the books, I can't remember what it was, but this scene really reminded me of it when it's basically alluding to the fact that if anything ever happened to Jamie and Claire together and Jamie had one bullet in his gun, he would use it to kill Claire. And I really felt like that was an apt description for this kind of scene that we're seeing right here because he knows what she's already been through and he's not willing to let her go through something like that again. And I think that more than anything is what makes their separation at the end of this episode so awful is that they have this conversation where she's literally like, I would rather die than go through that again. And they're forced apart and there's nothing that he can do. Like it's like 10 on one and she's even three on one. So they're just forced to watch each other fade away and she's forced to watch Jamie get his head bashed in by the blunt end of a rifle, which is pretty awful. I think that more than anything is what makes that such a horrific sight for us as viewers is that they had this conversation at the beginning of the episode by both of them surrendering and going together. They thought that at least whatever happened, they would be together and that Tom Christie's presence would save them from being separated because he promised to ensure their safety. During that time where Jamie and Claire are kind of getting a reprieve and taking a deep breath and kind of just talking with each other and trying to keep their mind off of what they're both wondering, which is, are we going to die soon? We talk about an event in Jamie's life that has not previously been mentioned in the show until now. It's something that when he was a young man in his late teens, early 20s, after his flogging at Fort William, he went to be a mercenary in France and become a professional soldier. In that time, he met a fortune teller who essentially told him that she sees him as a cat with nine lives. This leads to this very cute scene between the two of them where they're trying to count up how many of those nine lives he's lost. I think we counted five if we're counting the times that he says don't count. So we've got his flogging at Fort William, the aftermath of Wentworth Prison when he almost died of his infection and then his depression. Then we have him almost dying at Culloden. Then we have him being shot by Leary. And then, of course, the snake bite in season five. Those are the big ones that are counted in the show. There are different ones that are counted in the book, and that's what makes this difficult to keep track of because every Everything's just that tad bit off to where it's not exactly the same. But those are the ones that are counted as his lives lost in the show so far. I think it's so fun to kind of bring this kind of thing into a character because Jamie is notoriously hard to kill, right? And what if this is actually the case that he has nine lives? And so to think about that, like... 
okay, well, there's six, you know, or seven and constantly be on the edge of our seats. And is this going to be the time? Did we miss one? Was he closer to death than we thought one time? It's just kind of a fun way to keep readers and show watchers on their toes. But in the end, I think this conversation served its purpose because Claire says, I never thought a litany of all of your near-death experiences would bring me so much comfort. (laughs) In a time where you're fearing for your life and the life of the one that you love most, knowing that he's inherently a hard man to kill makes the situation a little bit easier to swallow that, well, maybe we will find a way out of this sticky situation. And I think that that's something that everybody sees. Everybody knows that Jamie is hard to kill. And even Tom, after they take Jamie and Claire and they separate them and Claire's like, you have to go back. They're going to kill Jamie. And Tom looks at her and says, going back would mean leaving you alone. And that's something I absolutely cannot do. I know your husband. He can take care of himself. That's actually probably very true and something that Jamie would say, given the choice between Tom protecting you and Tom coming back to help me, I would much rather have Tom go with you. I can take care of myself. So although it's a tight situation, there's also something that Claire is not seeing, and that is that Ian is watching out for Jamie. And so it all ends up being okay for Jamie in the end. But I can understand how that is very scary for Claire to go through because it's not just her that's in trouble. And yes, it's scary. And yes, she is in a lot of trouble at the end of this episode. Like, not great. But knowing that Jamie is okay would ease the burden a lot. I think one of the most heartbreaking scenes in this episode is a moment when Claire is asking, where's Ian? And Jamie says he's probably hunting. And well, well, where is everyone else? And he says, if they're not here by now, then they'll no be coming. And Claire looks at him and says, why won't they help us? It's just such a, a helpless question. And I think up until that point, Jamie knew that nobody was coming. He had pretty much gathered that, but he didn't want to take that hope away from Claire. And then to have to break the news to her that we're persona non grata, Claire. Like, they don't like us. Nobody likes us. Nobody's coming. If they're not here by now, we're on our own. I think for Claire, that's kind of incomprehensible for her because she lives to help people. And it doesn't matter who they are or what they've done, she will always help them if they need it. To see such judgment and anger coming off of these people that she's done nothing but help. She just feels completely abandoned on all sides. And the only thing that she has is Jamie and he's sitting right next to her also backed into a corner. So I felt really bad for Claire. Like that struck me this time when I was like, oh man. And then to kind of imagine Jamie knowing this and having comprehended this already, but not wanting to burst Claire's bubble and then having to be the one to deliver that news that, look, I don't think anybody's coming. I think we're on our own. That was very sad for me to witness this time around. But whenever people do show up, the Fisher folk show up first and are demanding that Jamie and Claire come out and negotiate a surrender, things immediately start to ramp up. It's hard to say what would have happened if Jamie's men hadn't shown up. The Fisher folk are already worked up. They know in their heart of hearts that Jamie and Claire are responsible for Malva's death. And I think that they don't want to believe that someone else could be out there. I think it's Jamie that says, my wife didn't kill her. And he says, well, if she didn't, then who did? That kind of triggered my line of thought where I was like, you know what? They are saying that Jamie and Claire did it because that's the easy one to point out. Jamie and Claire are very visible and they had a motive. But honestly, it's easier for them to believe that Jamie and Claire killed her than to believe that there's some anonymous third party out there killing people and they can't see them. It's a very menacing and haunting thing. So I imagine it brings them some level of comfort to just be like, there they are, they did it, arrest them, hang them, all is well with the world again. Tensions are really ramping up and I thought, you know, Claire's the only one that stands up for herself. As people are slinging accusations at her and saying that she's a murderess and blah, 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 she stands up and she says, I was trying to help her and I didn't kill her. She just wants so badly to be believed, but Jamie doesn't say anything. 
And I was really curious about that. Like, why would Jamie not say anything? I think it's just because he knows that it's a moot point. Like, it doesn't matter what they say. They're not going to believe him. It's wasted breath, basically. And that's really sad that Jamie Fraser, one of the most persuasive people, isn't even going to try to persuade these people that he didn't kill Malva because he knows he looks guilty and he knows Claire looks guilty. And he knows that no matter what he says, they're not going to change their mind. They're trying to negotiate between Hiram Crombie and Richard Brown and Jamie, what's going to happen? Jamie's trying his best to kind of worm their way out of the situation. He says, justice is mine, saith the Lord. It's very interesting in this scene because Alan steps up and says, take him. It was him who debauched my sister and murdered her. That's what I told you, Mr. Brown. So Alan's the one that went to the committee of safety and said, Mr. Fraser got my sister with child and then murdered her. Despite the fact that that's the statement that Alan gave when the Browns showed up, they came with the intent to arrest Claire for murder. So I find that very interesting that the initial claim wasn't actually against Claire. It says a lot about Richard Brown and what he knew going into this situation. As negotiations are being made and it the point's being made that, well, if they're both people of interest, why don't you just take both of them and then Jamie can be there with Claire to protect her and you have both of them there whenever you do find a court willing to take this trial and they can be tried according to the law. Jamie and Claire are feeling a bit better about it and his men show up. And Claire's like, oh, thank God, somebody's here. Somebody's going to take our side. But at that point, it's too late. There are way too many people and Jamie doesn't have enough men. He has Ronnie Sinclair, Kenny and Evan Lindsay, Keziah and Arch, and that's it. Versus an entire committee of safety and the entire mob of fisher folk. There's no way in hell that they're going to come out on top of that one and it's going to be a fight to the death. And Jamie doesn't see the point in risking his men's lives for something so pointless. Might as well give themselves up and at least save the people that he cares about. So Jamie says to Mr. Crombie, you deliver us into this devil's hand, Mr. Crombie, then may our blood be upon your head. You'll answer for our lives on the day of judgment. And then Tom Christie says, and I will answer for them now. I just thought Tom freaking Christie, man. He is just the wild card at every turn. I really do love it, though. You can see how much of a toll Malva's death has taken on Tom. And you can see on Alan's face how much he's struggling with how much his father is struggling, which is, it's really sad, but also makes you kind of question what the hell is going on? Because Tom Christie is not the kind of person that's going to stand up for a couple of murderers. Claire even wonders, is he going through all this trouble because he wants to protect us just to see us hung in the end? What's the motive here? In the end, we're led to believe that that Tom actually thinks Claire is innocent. We don't know what he thinks about Jamie, but whenever they're standing in the jail at the end, Tom makes a comment about trust in God, he will deliver the righteous. And she says, are you saying you believe I'm righteous? And he just looks at her and then he says, I won't leave town. We don't know what's happening, but we know that Tom doesn't really think that Claire killed Malva, which begs the question, does he know who killed Malva? Or does he just know that Claire didn't kill Malva? It's a very intriguing question that I'm sure we will learn the answers to in season seven, but we got a bit of a wait before we get those answers. I'm just about done discussing this episode, but there was one thing, my favorite part of this episode, actually, that I saved the best for last. The love scene between Jamie and Claire was amazing and beautiful and touching, so heart-wrenching. It's like a punch to the gut, really, watching this love scene. And I read a comment this week about how somebody didn't think that this was as passionate as some of the love scenes that we've seen from Jamie and Claire and how they kind of felt that way about the love scenes this season in general. And I just have to disagree, especially about this scene. There's so much more to this scene than just the sex of it all. And yeah, it's not as explicit this season, but that doesn't mean that there's any less 
fire or passion behind the scenes. Katrina and Sam especially kind of felt like they were being taken advantage of in terms of the amount of sex scenes that they were expected to do and how explicit those sex scenes were. And so I think that this has been good. We still get the same feeling from these scenes, but it's not like soft porn. (laughs) There are several things that I actually love about this scene. How it begins, first off, they're laying in bed. Claire is laying on her side and she's got a tear running down her cheek and then she turns over and Jamie is also laying in bed staring off into space. Like neither one of them can sleep. This is the last night in their house before God knows what is going to happen. And it's all thanks to Tom Christie who's like, you know what? We don't have to leave right now. We can give you guys an extra night in your own bed. So they get this night thanks to him. They owe this to Tom on top of everything else. Claire rolls over and faces Jamie and she says, I'm so scared. And you can just imagine how scared she was in the season five finale, not having Jamie there and being all on her own and facing pretty much the exact same thing, just being ripped from her home and taken to face the consequences of an action that she never really intended to have any consequences. Like it wasn't anything made with malicious intent. This time she's got time to contemplate what's coming. And given her past traumas, it's just all compiling into so much anxiety. You know, Jamie, anxiety filled as well. And so whenever she says she's scared, he turns to her and she's still got that tear trickling down her cheek. And he reaches out to her and touches her face and wipes the tear away with his thumb. And then she reaches out to him and does a similar motion, touching the cut on his brow with her thumb. And I loved the visual language of that so much because he's reaching out to her and saying, you don't need to be afraid. I'm here and I'll protect you. And she's reaching out to him and touching where he's injured and saying, I'm here for you and laying her healing hands on him as she's done so many times before. Whenever they join hands, their hands kind of fold together and are between them on the bed as they stare into each other's eyes. No matter what happens, Jamie and Claire are at the heart of this storm. It's so beautifully captured on the screen because they have this beautiful love scene. It's very well choreographed. It's got images of their skin against this inky blackness. You can't see anything except for them. And it really encompasses how it's just them in their own little bubble. And for a moment, they can take comfort in each other. And then the sounds of their lovemaking are overlaid with the complete and utter destruction of this home that they've built right on the heels of Claire saying to Jamie, we have a beautiful home. And that line is not necessarily saying we have a beautiful home, even though they do. It's gorgeous. What she's saying is we have a beautiful life together. I really loved that, that this scene was so beautiful on so many levels, not only for what the visual language of it is being, but also for cinematically how it was shot and what those shots are saying about the state of this couple, that no matter what chaos is going on around them, they still have each other and they're the heart of it, as Jamie Payne said. They're the heart of the rich and that will always be the case. One other fun little thing that I saw before we wrap up this episode, there are two scenes, just kind of transition scenes in this episode that kind of just caught my eye for some reason. So one of them is Adzo eating food out of a bowl after the whole Last Supper scene. And then the other is a couple of mice eating the scraps of Jamie and Claire's dinner whenever they are on the road to Wilmington after they've been arrested. And I was like, well, that's interesting that they've got a cat eating food and a mouse eating food. Very similar shots and lighting and stuff. And then I was like, well, it's pretty genius, actually, because this entire 
entire episode is a game of cat and mouse between Richard Brown and Jamie. I thought that that was clever that they're using those two animals in similar situations as transition scenes throughout the episode. Alrighty, that wraps up the analysis portion of this episode. Performance of the episode actually I thought was an ensemble performance. There were so many great performances this episode, whether it was Mark Lewis Jones, Katrina Balfe, Sam Hewen, Chris Larkin, who plays Richard Brown. There were so many phenomenal little scenes. One scene in particular that caught my eye was the first attempt to drop Jamie and Claire in the arms of the justice system when they get to Salisbury and Jamie and Claire are kind of sitting on their saddlebags and blankets. There's a scene after Richard Brown comes back and says, yeah, we're not going to be able to leave him here. We can't take him to Cross Creek because that's where his aunt lives and she's got sway over the people there. So we're marching on to Wilmington. Tom gives Claire his stew or whatever it is. And he goes back and he sits on his blanket. He is staring at Claire with this odd look on his face. Claire is staring off into the distance with a look of complete horror and shock and sadness on her face. And Jamie, not saying a word, is looking at both of them. And there is so much said in that little blip without any dialogue at all. We get this look of conflict on Tom's face as he stares at Claire. And we're not quite sure what it is, but you can see Jamie piecing it together. He's not going to say a damn thing about it, but you can see his mind working. It's so interesting. It's an episode full of those performances. And not only do we have the actors' performances, but we've got great work by your special effects team, by your director, by your cinematographer, by your set designers. It was really just a phenomenal episode, honestly, and I think everybody did a great job. As for quote of the episode, it was more of a lighthearted scene. (laughs) With all these heavy episodes, I've been picking lighthearted scenes for my quote of the episode. And this one is the sight of Yasasnak pounding on that wee lad in a fit of fury. The look of blood in your eye. I'll treasure it. He's talking to her about how whenever you hit somebody, make sure you hit them in the soft parts because there are a lot of bones and teeth in the face and that's how you bang up your hands. And uh, she's like, oh, well, thanks for the advice. It's just yet another one of those great Jamie and Claire moments where despite everything that's happening around them, they still are the heart of the show and they still do really have a strong relationship with one another. So yeah, I really like that about this episode. That That's the undercurrent. Even with everything else going on, So that by the time we get to the end when they're separated, you almost feel devastated in a completely different way because they've been emotionally distant for much of the season. And then you finally feel like they've reconnected and they're back on a level playing field. And then this happens and it's just like, you've got to be freaking kidding me. (laughs) All right. So that wraps up my analysis of 608. I am not alone. But as always, I open it up to you guys to let me know what you thought on this episode. So without further ado, let's get into listener comments. Marlene Morgenstern says, Episode 608 was both thrilling and devastating. Regarding the cinematography, I was particularly drawn to the camera panning slowly at floor level through the big house, showing broken glass everywhere. I saw this as a metaphor for the way their lives on the ridge have been irrevocably shattered. The love scene between Jamie and Claire was the best of the entire season for me. They were given a last night in their home before being taken away the next morning by force. They comforted each other with an incredible sensual tenderness. As Jamie and Claire's theme was heard in the background. The extreme facial close-ups, the way they touched, the unusual camera angles, and the discreet draping of the bedclothes around a pregnant Katrina made it powerful yet soul-crushing. Sam, as usual, conveyed love with his eyes, his body, his movements. Superb acting throughout the entire episode from Sam and Katrina and every other cast member. God, wasn't this love scene just fantastic? There were so many mirrored movements and the focus on the hands was very key to this particular scene, how they were touching each other. Jamie would reach out and it would be him stroking her shoulder and then that would kind of fade into Claire touching Jamie's shoulder in the same way and then it would be Jamie gripping Claire's thigh or butt and then it would be Claire's hand draping down Jamie's back. It's very smooth and connected and very sensual, as you said, it was beautiful. 
Mary Dorenzo Spinelli says, I loved the ending. Young Ian came through and Chief Bird was great. Although it was a shortened season due to COVID and Kat's pregnancy, I am forever grateful that they came together to give us this limited season. As for the intimate scenes, they weren't as full of the Claire and Jamie passion we've come to know on screen and in the books, but I totally understand since Kat was pregnant. I do hope that was the reason and not the intimate counselor or coach, whatever she is. The scenes in their final night in their home were very touching and sad. I loved that Ian got to tell his story and how Jamie was so compassionate and understanding. They have such a beautiful relationship. Season six certainly set the stage for a very exciting season seven. I can't wait. I do think that part of the reason for the sex scenes appearing the way that they are in season six was because Kat was pregnant and they had to be discreet in how they shot. It had to be close up because they couldn't show her belly and even her breasts as she became more pregnant. So yeah, I think it was probably really hard for them to structure a passionate sex scene. Even Kat and Sam were saying that it did become very uncomfortable for Kat to do these sex scenes as she got bigger and to make them even look natural, especially the scene in, I think it's 602 in Allegiance, where Jamie comes home all hot and bothered from being with the Indian women. Kat was actually fairly pregnant, and that was actually a very difficult scene for them to film because of her baby bump. So I do think that Kat's pregnancy did have a lot to do with how they ended up shooting most of the intimate scenes in this episode. But like I said, I don't think that it impacted the passion of them at all. It's just really showcasing how emotional their encounters are are. The ending was great, honestly. And that's one thing that I knew would probably be a hot topic in the comments. So I didn't really spend a lot of time talking about it. But one thing that I did have mentioned to me by a couple of people was how repetitive the ending of this season felt because it was like, oh my god, well, Jamie just rescued Claire in the season five finale. And here we are doing it again. So I understand why they felt like it was repetitive. But honestly, I just have to keep telling people this wasn't meant to be the season finale. The season finale was supposed to be episode four of season seven. So keep that in mind that they didn't choose to end it here, but I understand why they feel that it is a bit repetitive. I thought it was absolutely perfect that it was Ian and the Cherokee that ended up saving Jamie. And that was one of the things that I was really glad they chose to have episode eight be the end of the season because we get some closure on the Cherokee storyline. There's a payoff to the whole Indian agent's stuff that happened at the beginning of this season in the I told you I will fight with you bear killer. That was so fantastic. And then to see them all riding down the beach on their way to rescue Claire, it did get me to thinking about what the timeline of this all was because it's been what, like probably another week in Claire's timeline since her and Jamie were separated to when she got to Wilmington was actually thrown in jail. So I think we rewinded a little bit to find Jamie. I think that it was actually kind of the same day of the separation is when we picked up with Jamie's storyline and he was rescued by Ian and the Cherokee. So I did find that interesting, but I also think that's something that we'll have to keep in mind in the season seven premiere as well, that Jamie's storyline is a few steps behind where Claire ended her story in season six. All right, the final comment of the night and season six is from Lara Hillman-Turner. She says, what a fantastic ending. The ending was a callback to earlier this season when Jamie wrote to Governor Martin supporting Ian's wishes regarding the Cherokee and Chief Bird's request for weapons. This decision comes full circle with a big payoff. Jamie seeing Ian in the woods and Ian tells him, I am not alone. I was comforted just knowing Ian was near, and I'm sure Jamie was too. Flash forward to Jamie's rescue on the beach, Ian, Chief Bird, and friends come in and kick ass. Jamie begs Ian not to shoot Oaks. Don't, he kens where Claire is. And then Ian, with the best line of the season, says, so do we, uncle. Dueling facial expressions from Jamie and Oaks, Jamie's relief, and Oaks's horror. Chief Bird blasts Oaks through the hand and eye. Chief Bird, I told you I would fight with you, bear killer. Such a great ending for the season, especially as this was not the original intended end to season six. It fit well. Thank you, Chelsea, for another great season of the Sassanac Files. We're lucky to have you. Looking forward to season six superlatives. Aw, thank you, Laura. Yeah, agree. It was a great ending. And it was really great to see Ian rocking it as this 
very sneaky, following two steps behind in the shadows so nobody knows where he's at. And then all of a sudden he pops up and I love how Jamie was like, Christ. And he was like, more like guardian angel. And Jamie says, we're going to need a whole host of those, lad. (laughs) But yes, that is definitely where the I am not alone title comes from when Ian surprises Jamie and says, I'm not alone. You have friends that are willing to fight for you, Jamie. Just say the word. It was really great. It gives us sense of comfort. After such a desolate episode where everybody seems to be against Jamie and Claire, it was really comforting to know that they still have friends. So that about wraps up season six, guys. It has been a fantastic season. I cannot wait for season seven. It is going to be a doozy. There are so many things that I'm excited to see in season seven. So you guys will definitely have to tune in for my bring on season seven episode with Angela that I'm planning on doing here in a couple months. That's going to be fantastic. And we're really excited to do it. But before all of that happens, a few things. So next Saturday or October 1st, whenever you're listening to this, it will be my season Season six superlative live episode on TSF Obsassnax with Angela. That will be a live event. If you are a member of TSF Obsassnax, it will be at 4 p.m. Eastern time. If you're not a member of TSF Obsassnax and would like to be, it's a Facebook group. You just go on, request to join, answer all three of the admission questions, and agree to follow the rules. And then you can participate in all of the live events that I'm going to be hosting there. After season six superlatives, I'm officially on hiatus from all new Outlander material. My plan is is to do episodes whenever season seven material starts coming out, such as teaser trailers, credits, actual trailers, any tidbits from the cast, scenes that come out, stuff like that, because I'm enjoying this with you guys. And this is the first time that I've been completely caught up and can actually gush about these things with you on the podcast. So I'm pretty excited about that. I do have some plans for some other material. Obviously, on October 22nd and 29th, I'm going to be doing my next edition of Droughtlander Book Club. I'm covering The Sapphire Brooch by Catherine Lowry Logan. It is the third book in the Celtic Brooch series, and we'll be covering it in part one on the 22nd and part two on the 29th, both at 4 p.m. Eastern time, hosted on TSF Obsassnax. Beyond that, like I said, we've got our Bring On Season 7 episode, which does not have a firm date yet, but we are planning on doing that. Droughtlander Book Club's going to continue. I've got some other fun episodes planned, so I'll make sure to apprise you guys of those whenever they are available for your ears. Until then, you guys hang in there, stay safe. Droughtlander's going to continue on for a while longer, but I hope to give you guys a little bit of entertainment in that direction. So hang in there with me. Make sure to join me for Droughtlander Book Club if you like time travel romance and the Sassanac Files. It's a perfect fit. You guys have a great week. I will chat at you next week for season six superlatives. Bye. Bye.